Let's talk about you for a second. If you're listening to the podcast, you're a change agent. You're either covertly, overtly, or at minimum in a position to affect change in the world of higher education. And that is powerful. But that's simply not enough. It's just not. Don't get me wrong. We love that you're here. But listening to a podcast or even participating in the live clubhouse where this gets recorded won't even get us started because there is simply no action associated with that. What we do have is critical mass. We've been building it. A select group of us that believe, that believe disruption is necessary, that believe a new model is possible, that believe that change can happen today. On the FutureX podcast, Higher Ed Changemaker Ben Nelson returns as we discuss the courage of facing our fear to affect change. Have you faced your fears? Have you faced the fear of speaking up, of developing your own startup plans, of developing your own models, or of adding your voice to this debate? We must face a big foe. And that foe is us. Let's jump into the conversation. Christine, Matt, and Nader take us through the discussion of having the courage to face our fear and develop something new. This idea of courage, I think a lot of people are at a point in time where they're dissatisfied with education, but a lot of people are hesitant to take action or unsure of what to do. And honestly, I, I get how people look at this and think that there's a lot of courageous decisions that have happened. But my internal perspective is like we're all just there for the cause. So it doesn't really feel courageous. It feels necessary. Right. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about the perception of courageousness in first creating the undergraduate program. And then what we're trying to do now, which is share the message more broadly across different audiences. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good point, Christine, because I, I feel like I have a very similar uh, perspective and you do. And I think one of the, the words that Matt uh, used earlier was this, uh, th- this idea of confidence. Um, we, we have these seven guiding principles that govern the way that we show up, that we work at Minerva. Um, and I, I like to put uh, six of those seven into pairs with one kind of being a meta guiding principle. But the, the two pairs that are seemingly contradictory is this idea of being confident and being unconventional. Um, I just talked about that unconventionality around purposeful integrity. But if you're unconventional and not confident, then you're going to get clobbered, right? You're not going to be able to um, actually get anything done. No one will listen to you. You're going to be idiosyncratic, and you're certainly not going to be able to, to, to lead. But that combination of being unconventional and confident enables the kind of work we do in, in that has purposeful integrity. Uh, and and it's so for for me, uh, I mean, I, some people will call it courage because they'll 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 just say, um, uh, oh well, you know, you march to the beat of your own drum, and that takes courage. I, in some ways, uh, look at it as as cowardice because I can't live with myself um, by just nodding and saying, oh yes, oh yes knowing that something is wrong. <laughs> I, I, 
you know, I, I have a, a problem. Maybe it's a psychological issue of, of not just being able to, to, to say, oh, well, huh, I've actually thought about something. And clearly, you know, at least from the analytics that, I, I, that I've gone through, like you, we shouldn't be taking path, you know, Q and you're instead on path W. And why am I going down one path versus, an, why am I saying yeah, path W is the right, um, is the right path when it clearly is not. So some people look at that as courage. I just look at that as a default way of being. Um, I, I don't understand why um, and how people who actually truly do care about certain uh, uh, outcomes will constantly perpetuate um, self-destructive or counterproductive uh, types of, uh, uh, of choices. So if Again, I, I, I think, you know, I, I've seen a lot of courage in my life. I don't think that uh, uh, this really qualifies, but um, but I it really is. If you have good systematic thinking, you should be sticking to it. I think it's agentic, right? This is a word that I think is really important for people who believe that a change needs to happen, is that Minerva has a lot of agency associated with the people who come through and the people who resonate with it. Yeah, you know, when I talk about courage, Ben, and when I when I when I heard, you know, the story of Minerva and I heard it way before, you know, I got to meet Christine, I I, I you know, I work with presidents and I work with large, you know, leaders at these campuses. A lot of them, you know, are afraid to make the, the decisions to go and embark on something different. There is this consensus-driven strategy that everyone has to to follow, right? And sometimes, you know, going and doing something different takes courage because you are you are embarking on something that takes risk. There's a risk to your brand. There's a risk to the investors that come into that play. There's there's risk to just not being successful and. I, I, you know, you may not consider it courage. I, I know what I see in market and I believe the ones that, that are going to help higher ed transform are the ones that have courage, the ones that do the right thing. The one that says, Hey, maybe 120 hour credit hour degree should not be what we should be designing according to. Now, I'm not saying that we have to move away from that. I'm saying you need to have courage to go and do something different. And, and I believe what you're doing at Minerva. And the concepts of it, the fact that you have, you know, experiential and project-based and cognitive, you know, science and, and place-based, all these are really amazing things that it takes courage to go do something different and say, you know what, follow me and I will lead you to the direction. And that's where I came from, that courage discussion from you, Ben. I, I look, I, I, I very much appreciate it. Um, and I, 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 it's very kind of you to say I, um, I, 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 I find others in this world to be far more courageous than I, uh, <laughs> when faced with, um, you know, threats of imprisonment and jail and ostracization. Um, yeah, so I, I appreciate it. Um, I do, I do think that all too often leaders at institutions that are, um, Oh boy, I'm going to get myself in trouble, but I'll just say it. Um, that avoid um, uh, avoid you know fighting the the necessary fights uh, aren't ones that lack courage. They 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 lack. Um, they're basically lazy. <laughs> they, um, they you know they 
they they don't go through the work that is necessary to not to go out and declare right and say oh okay i am the president of the institution i've decided we're going to do this and come with me follow my lead but they haven't actually spent the time to engage their constituencies and un- and get them to go through the journey to un- establish shared uh, uh, values, to establish consequences, to explain to them the the impact of their decisions. Uh, I'll give you an example, right? Hector was talking about um, enabling uh, a of uh, 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 in- inclusivity, uh, which I, by the way, never use that word. I actually uh, I think inclusivity is fundamentally an exclusive word. So I uh, I hate the concept. Um, um, but um, I'll say what we we talk, talk about is a, uh, a sense of of universal belonging in an institution, right? And that's not going to be a uh, a controversial goal. Right? And if you actually go and, and engage a faculty and say, look, you know, we're, we really should be a community where 100% of students in this community need to know without a shadow of a doubt that every one of the, the fellow students here uh, belong, that there isn't a, uh, a, a concept that uh, people should be here really don't have a deep sense of belonging in this community, um, all of a sudden, uh, and, and again, you're going to have a very uh, 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 easy, unanimous consent on, on that idea. You say, okay, well, now let's talk about implications of that. And, and can you have a, uh, a true belonging if we know that you know, there's a chunk of students that are here because mommy and daddy went here. Not really, right? All of a sudden, you say, you know, that really isn't, isn't real. And then if you say, well, if you actually have a sense of belonging, how do you actually get students to come from different backgrounds and different circumstances to feel like they're members of an intellectual community? How do you actually, are we actually developing a cohesive, intellectual language that our students use in order to enable belonging. I was like, oh, no, I guess we're not. Right? So you, you go through and you have the journey with, with, with folks and you, you establish the, the idea of a shared goal and a shared uh, outcome, and then you lead. Right? You lead people in such a way that you make the ref- reforms necessary in order to achieve that goal. I, I fundamentally, I don't find that to be a courageous process, right? Um, I, I just find that to be an effective process. Um, and I think all, all too many people would think about that and say, oh my God, that's a lot of work. I don't have time. And they may be right. They may be busy doing other things, but it, it's not for, um, it doesn't call for courage. It just calls, calls for people to, to do the hard work that they need to do. The work that we need to do to set people up begs the question of what we actually teach people. And I believe Nader has a question about this. Yes, I do. Thank you so much, Christine, for the uh, opportunity. It was a pleasure listening to you, Ben. 
Um, I'm a higher education teacher from Lebanon. Uh, I teach university students. I've been doing that for like seven years. Um, I, I was always worried about the employability of my students. And this is something that is shared by my administration and any other university. Maximizing our students' employability. Um, while we try to do that in the conventional way, which is, you know, teaching them quality courses, make sure the class experience is engaging and so on and so forth. And that works. But I always feel there's a disconnect between what the student learns in class, even if he's an A student, and what happens in the uh, job market and what he faces or she faces in the job market. They do get employable, but they use very little of what they learn in university. Um, So there's this gap that exists between what happens in class and what's happening in the world. And this is rapidly changing. Like the world is rapidly changing every single day. So my question is, uh, what strategies um, can be applied, whether it's me as a teacher in class or on a curriculum level, to make sure that our students are really more employable and ready for the rapidly changing uh, job market and making sure that what they see in the job market and the roles that they play are actually what they saw in class and are actually roles that they experience in class. Now, as personally, I what I do is that I include role playing in my classrooms. For example, I teach digital marketing. I divide my students into groups and each group adopts a company and each group has positions. You're the digital marketer of the company, you're the CEO, you're the communication officer, so on and so forth. That's what I do, but this is just me. I'm sure there are many more strategies and tactics we can follow. And if you have some ideas or approaches, I'd be very thankful. Happy to, Nader. Um, and, and I hope that you are uh, uh, staying uh, uh, safe and uh, uh, are, are dealing with the insanity that uh, is happening in, in Lebanon right now. So, uh, I'm uh, shining. Certainly, certainly thinking of uh, of your circumstance uh, and hope hope that's uh, that's uh, you're, you're surviving that. Thank you. Um, the I'll start from a curricular perspective, uh, and then I'll, I'll I'll maybe just touch quickly on on what what a teacher can do, but. But ultimately, there is a, a, a fundamental problem with, um, with our approach in the education sector towards work. And, and it comes from the fact that we are so anchored in teaching context. Um, you know, the, the, I'll give you one example, and I'll, you know, which is when, when I was uh, in, before I started in Nerva, I was working in, you know, the, the internet world. And, there was a time uh, in kind of 2006, seven when uh, there was a programming language called Ajax. Uh, and, uh, and everything, like Ajax was the hottest thing. Uh, and uh, uh, and uh, I remember I was, <laughs> my company was bought by a very large uh, company and, and they bought this other little startup and this little startup was built on Ajax and the, the, the people who were running company, oh, Ajax, 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 we have to do everything in Ajax and we have to train everybody in Ajax and all the rest. If a university were to have been quote unquote responsive to employers and they would ask this employer and say, what are the things that we need to train our, our students to? They would say, oh my God, we need more Ajax engineers. And the university would say, okay, well, let's do that. And so they would go and they'd retool their curriculum that would take a year or two. They would advertise uh, uh, the uh, the program for incoming students. They would 
and start. Four years later, they would graduate with uh, uh, being very proficient in Ajax. Um, and uh, and by that time, six years later, in 2012, no one on the planet was programming in Ajax because it was a pretty idiotic framework uh, that that was transitionary. Didn't make any sense. And and the the reality is is that when when we think about employability, we're so focused on going back to context, right? To a particular specific set of skills and universities are simply not built to administer that. And you would say, oh, well, that's computer programming, that's languages, they change rapidly, right? But the reality is that you can even look at, uh, uh, at, at, at other areas. I mean, the reality is, is that, for example, doctors don't understand science. Um, they, and, and, and what they broadly prescribe uh, or think about prescribing a medication, what they've learned in medical school is wildly outdated. Um, not just for those who graduated 10, 20 years ago, but those who graduate now. The curriculum simply doesn't keep up with advancements in science. But more importantly, and this is really what it comes down to it, it doesn't teach instincts. And that's what happens on acquired wisdom over decades of experience. There's a reason why a doctor a graduated medical school 40 years ago can walk into a hospital room, and this is well documented, look at a patient, and without asking questions could diagnose the patient far better than a recently graduated medical school uh, or medical school graduate, but just did their residency has the latest in quote-unquote information. And the experienced doctor can't actually explain what it is, but they know how to interpret, you know, uh, uh, the, the color of, uh, uh, of somebody's skin, if they see, uh, uh, like, the kinds of effects in, uh, uh, in skin tone, in the way that eyes are, uh, are, are dilated. Um, I mean, just... All of these types of things that are able to, over time, come together and get experienced, quote-unquote, wise doctors the ability to understand diagnosing in ways that schooling doesn't prepare them for. And so the answer really is that a curriculum that doesn't center on context but centers on concept, that teaches instincts among students in a cross-contextual way that they can apply no matter what the particular area is. And rather than being obsessed with training a student for a particular context, for a particular set of knowledge, instead to give them these transversal skills and tools, that is what makes them job ready. And by the way, that's what happens when they go to the job interview, right? Because when they get it, when you go to the job interview, you're not going to be asked a question but a context that you're familiar with. You're going to be pushed to demonstrate how well you think, right? And so the more a curriculum focuses on systematic thinking, the more those graduates are more job ready. And so it's the, it's the focus on systematic thinking, which is crucial. Now, within a class, right, what a professor can do, if your curriculum doesn't have that at its core, think about what you can do within the context of your own class, right? So think about, well, if I'm going to teach this particular context, right, it, 
what are the tools that will make my student the most able to impress or apply within this context? And you'll be able to come up with certain things. Oh, they have to really think about how to evaluate evidence in this way, or boy, this really have to think about decision trade-offs, or boy, they really don't can't understand this field without really kind of grasping emergent properties. And so what the instructor can do is now shift the center of gravity of the class. And so if they really need to understand emergent properties, rather talking about emergent properties in biology, let's say it's a biology class, and you want to get them to understand some of the underlying uh, concepts in biology, instead have a class recentered on emergent properties and use examples in biology and chemistry and physics, but also in politics and also in, um, in computer science, right? And, and develop these cross-contextual instincts with examples in biology, but where the ability to be able to identify and predict emergent properties becomes the core of the class. And then when they graduate, right, even when they're in a biological context, because they've been able to acquire those broader applicable skills, transferable skills, they'll be far more job ready. Chancellor Ben Nelson is the founder of Minerva and a visionary with a passion to reinvent higher education. Prior to Minerva, Nelson spent more than 10 years at Snapfish, where he helped build the company from startup to the world's largest personal publishing service. Prior to joining Snapfish, Nelson was president and CEO of Community Ventures, a network of locally branded portals for American communities. Nelson's passion for reforming undergraduate education was first sparked at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School, where he received a Bachelor's of Science in Economics. After creating a blueprint for curricular reform in his first year of school, Nelson went on to become the chair of the Student Committee on Undergraduate Education, a pedagogical think tank that is the oldest and only non-elected student government body at the University of Pennsylvania. This episode was recorded live on Clubhouse. Check us out at the Future X Tribe. It was produced by the Future X Tribe, Beyond Academics, and BNEXT Global. Executive Director and Chief Moderator, Matt Alex. Edited by BNEXT Global Media. Our music is by David Cutter. I'm Hector H. Lopez. We'll see you next time as we continue our discussions with the higher ed changemakers on the Futurex podcast.